we're in week three of discussing the future of the church and what church leadership really looks like going forward. And and I we Justin and I were here together a couple of weeks ago. Justin carried it last week, as he oftentimes does, because he's I really feel like he's a leading authority in this area. And I'm thrilled to be able to learn from him in some of this. So Justin, let me turn it over to you. I know um, before I do that, just a, a bit of a background. You know, week one, we talked about understanding the storm. Last week, Justin taught on a church for the storm in terms of what is it going to look like. Uh, that was part one. Justin, give us, uh, feel free to do any more recap that you think yeah. is helpful to take us up to where we're headed today. And then where are we headed today? Yeah. So we looked at kind of big picture stuff last week, some kind of philosophical or thematic ideas. So the first thing was I invented a word that I'm sure you guys have been using all week, evangelistic, uh, evangelistic evangelism, uh, apologetics, and discipleship, and talked about how the three of those things have to really go hand in hand in this next season, that we have to be continually evangelizing our own people and the world with the good news, the truthfulness of the gospel. But we have to do that in a way that is apologetic, not that we are apologizing for the gospel, but that we are arguing for it. And we are demonstrating the logical coherence of the gospel and the, the Christian vision. And that has to constantly be part of our preaching and our evangelism and our discipleship because our people are constantly barraged by other messages that are fundamentally different than the gospel and, you know, kind of a kingdom Christian ethic. And so we have to constantly be doing apologetics, not just with the world, but for our people so that they can be prepared when they're at the, whatever the water cooler equivalent is nowadays uh, and are getting questions or, or have to face the realities of being part of conservative church uh, in the world today. And, and I, you know, with all of this, I recognize it, I mean, honestly, not a week goes by that we don't talk about this stuff that I, I don't get an email that says, hey, you know, where we're at, we don't face this, you know, and that and that's great. And I think the reality is culture moves from cities to suburban to rural. They move from coasts to middle. That's just how culture moves. I think digital culture being what it is, or digital media being what it is, this is happening more rapidly. And you're finding little pockets uh, that are kind of pockmarking the country and even within cities um, where you're seeing more and more and more of this. So I, I get that not everything we talk about is going to apply equally to all people. And, and admittedly, having served in you know, all major cities from Phoenix to San Francisco, to Seattle, to now Los Angeles, uh, I, I am you know, probably biased towards the progressive end of the way culture is moving, because that's what I see and that's what I've been in. But I think experience tells us where those places are is where everywhere else is going. So we have to be doing evangelship in every uh, area of our ministry, constantly reiterating not just what we believe, but why we believe and shaping and forming our people in those areas. So that was one. Two was we have to prepare people for real life, right? Preparing leaders for the church, preparing people to be good church people is not sufficient. We have to prepare people for real life. We have to prepare them to be good neighbors. And I don't just mean, you know, mow your neighbor's lawn, but like, how do you uh, talk to a neighbor that is increasingly secularized, increasingly radicalized, increasingly, you know, uh, kind of not even uh, de-churched, but never been churched as, you know, immigration brings all different kinds of people who have no background in the church. And so uh, we just have to prepare people for real life and talk a lot about how all of these things that, the, that Jesus and Paul and Peter and all these guys are talking about really applies to real life. And I used an example of my sermon that I was getting ready to preach last Sunday um, about Jesus talking about sin. And, you know, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. If your hand causes you to sin, chop it off and all that. And the reality is like, our, our world doesn't talk about sin at all. Um, not that word. And so, you know, preaching a sermon that's just about the seriousness of sin is true, but less relevant than it could be. And so what I did, and I'm not trying to, you know, set myself up as this icon of, of great, you know, relevant preaching. But just as an example, I went, okay, 
what, how is the world talking about sin without talking about sin? Well, we use words like harm and violence and abuse and toxic. And all of those are just synonyms for sin. So the world's not talking about sin any less. They're just not using the word sin. And with those new terms come new definitions. With those new definitions come new gatekeepers that are defining what is sin for our world. So I framed the whole sermon as, okay, how do we think about sin? How do we think about it now in our world? And how is it no less serious, but being you know, defined in new ways, right? So we have to be doing that kind of stuff all the time. And then third, a return to godliness without legalism. And, and this was kind of me talking about how I think a lot of the problems Christians are facing in the world today, and I used a Keller quote from that World Magazine article, but a lot of the problems we're facing in the world today are the result of a lack of godliness among Christians. Now, is that the only reason? No, Jesus told us they were going to hate us. That's all baked in. That's the baseline. But lack of godliness on top of all that just stokes the fire. And so I, I do think we are going to need to return to a vision for godliness without uh, returning to legalism as, as often our want. So that was last week. That was a much longer review than I probably should have done. This week, we are going to talk about uh, a church for the storm part two, um, but way more practical kind of church organization, church leadership stuff. Uh, and I've got what? Five things. Five things that I think we need to do uh, to prepare to be the church for the storm. Brian, I'm just going to jump in with that first one and uh, and you jump in whatever you want to, okay? Take so num number one, church for the storm has to get better. We've got to get better, okay? I know how that sounds. I know that's like, well, sure, thanks a lot. Like you just added pressure to my life, but I just think that's reality. We have to get better. We can't just assume people are going to show up. We have to go get them, right? And when they do show up, we can't assume they're going to stay. We have to work harder to keep them. And I would just say everything across the board has to improve. Our preaching, our music, our pastoral care, children's ministry, and maybe most importantly, all the systems that support these things have to improve as well. Things cannot fall through the cracks. We can't have these big gaps where we just assume people know what to do. They know what the next step is, and they're just going to take the next step because this is how we've always done. Okay. Think about it this way. We're into round two now of the NFL playoffs. The regular season weeded out all of the teams that weren't good enough, didn't have good enough coaching, didn't have a tight enough system, didn't have enough depth, whatever it was, didn't have enough stars to get into the playoffs. What we saw in that Rams and Cardinals game, if y'all watched it, is the complete and utter shutdown of the Cardinals offense and the breakdown of their defense. They weren't prepared. So every round of the playoffs, the pressure gets bigger, harder, tighter. Everyone's got to get better. And only the strongest survive, the people who make the fewest mistakes and are most prepared for it. Now, I think that the result, one of the results of the changes in culture is just going to be more and more pressure. People are going to be less likely to give us a pass if they, you know, send in an email and saying, hey, I'd love more information about your church. And they don't hear from us for a week because we don't have a system that responds or they hear from us and go, hey, cool, you should come on Sunday. And they come on Sunday and they fill out an info card and no one reaches back out to them or they don't know where how to check in their kids. Like, I, I just don't think we can afford to not be on our game. And I think the pressure is just mounting, okay? So if you remember in the, in the end of last year, when we started talking about what, what's gonna come up uh, in this coming year and understanding the storm and all that, we talked about the fact that we think churches are gonna get bigger and smaller. And what we're gonna lose is that kind of mushy middle. Right. So the churches that are able to respond or are already kind of tight with their systems and they're doing a great job, uh, they're going to grow because people are going to go, listen, that just that it works. They know what they're doing. They care about it. They've, they've plugged all the holes. I think the churches that don't do that are going to get smaller and they're going to basically survive insofar as they are relationally connected. I think we have to just get better, which means we need coaching. 
We need the right people. We need the right leaders. And especially you guys have to grow as leaders. Leaders have never been more necessary to the church. Now, let me pause because I know that that's a lot and that's a big ask and it's a lot of pressure. And reality is, you know, this is not why most of us got into ministry in the first place. We want to just love people and preach the Bible and study. Uh, and I'm just saying, in order to survive the coming storm, the next 10, 20 years in ministry, I think everybody just has to level up, okay? The, all, all of the, the, the churches that are not ready to take this on in a serious way, I, I just think are going to really struggle in the coming years. Brian, soften that. Play it to good Well, God. what you're saying, essentially, I remember years ago, I went camping with my kids, and there was a little pond that was stocked. And the minute you threw a line into that pond, you caught a fish, right? And so I don't know what you call that. It was like, the, you know, the different campgrounds will have those places or whatever. It's like, it's, it's planned to make sure that you catch a fish the minute you throw a line into that pond, because it's a little stocked pond, right? So where Keith lives out in Shepherdsville, Keith, who's on this call today, I think they have one of those ponds out there at the Shepherdsville KOA, one of the most amazing campgrounds I've ever been, where they have a huge pillow that you can jump on also. Anyways, all I have to say, uh, listen, there's a, there's, there's a, there's a way of looking at this. It was kind of like we've been fishing in a stocked pond historically in the United States, uh, because the United States has had largely a, a large Christian influence, different, say, than a country like India, which has not been Christianized, at least historically, and not, not since William Carey, uh, or Europe, which has been very, very post-Christian. And I think when I hear Justin, I think this goes right in line with what we've been trying to help you do in Pastor God for, for years now, is for you to manage your time more effectively, grow in your preaching, make sure your systems are good, and frankly, if I'm just like Justin, I'm not going to soften it a whole lot. In fact, if anything, I'm probably going to double down because most, most churches I visit aren't doing things very well. And it's almost like, hey, to do things well, that makes me a pragmatist. And so, you know, it's about preach the word in season and out of season. And yes, it is about preach the word in season and out of season. And it's also about demonstrate hospitality and doing things with excellence. Uh, and so I just would say, Please pay attention to this. We're not trying to be overly pragmatic. We're not trying to turn you into baby boomers. Uh, we're not trying to do any of that. What we're doing is saying, preach better sermons, do things well, focus on doing things excellently to the glory of God, which is biblical. So no, double down on that. And I think it's super important. We're no longer fishing in a stocked pond. Uh, I just, you know, I've lived in my neighborhood for nine years and I've never led anybody to Christ at this point in my neighborhood yet but I've shared the gospel. People know I'm a Christian. It's not a very soft context, <laughs> you know, so, so true. And so let's press on to number two out of five. All right. Number two, uh, we got to get better, but we also have to get cheaper. Okay. We got to get cheaper. Giving is down across the country. And I get, you may be the exception for now. We all saw kind of a big uptick uh, at the beginning of COVID. And that has for most people diminished over the last two years. Um, so giving's down, we have to learn how to do more with less, which means we have to be more efficient with our dollars and we have to spend our money where we get maximum impact. We can no longer hire people because they're good guys and, and pretty godly and we like them. We have to do a better job uh, with efficiency. We have to cut unnecessary staff, cut unnecessary expenses. Uh, me and my uh, partner here uh, at All Souls Church, Harvey Turner, just had an offsite yesterday where we went through the budget line by line and we had to pare down, cut things because we're facing budget deficits just like everybody else. We have to pay for things that matter. Okay. So we got to uh, cut unnecessary staff and expenses. We have to find places to be more efficient. I would say this pay for things that multiply you and multiply ministry, okay? So one very specific example, of this is something I've said to you guys before. I say this to guys all the time, pay for deacons, not elders. Pay for deacons, not elders. Why? Deacons are cheaper. One, deacons do stuff. Two, elders you can get for free. 
the thing that people most want to do for free in ministry in churches typically are really easy people tasks, right? Greeting, ushering, sometimes children's ministry, uh, anything that's going to be on stage, people are just lining up for to do for free announcements or, you know, music or whatever it is. Uh, so don't pay for things you don't have to pay for. And I think people tasks and eldering are the two things you don't really have to pay for. So do leadership development, develop lay elders, get commitments for five hours a week of people engagement, shepherding, and you know high level kind of leadership theology stuff that you get from an elder, but you don't have to pay for that, okay? I would be very unlikely to pay for another elder level person because typically they, are, they have a family, they are, you know, just more expensive. Only pay for them if you are in a context where, you know, the size necessitates it uh, and that they are multipliers of ministry. So they are going to be able to, uh, you know, kind of enable and empower a lot of volunteers and people like that. So you just have to find ways to become more efficient. Um, but overall, I think we need to plan to get cheaper uh, in these coming years. Brian, anything to add there? Yeah, I would just say um, we have been increasingly increasingly professionalized in our church culture, and we've increasingly moved away, probably starting with baby boomer sort of megachurches. Uh, we've moved away from relying on volunteers. We do a whole module on volunteers and pastor guide that helps you think through how to maximize the use of volunteers. So what you're going to have to do is realize we've got to maximize dollars. And so we're going to maximize the use of volunteers and people love giving time. I mean, look, growing up in a church of 150 people that my dad pastored, nobody was paid, but my dad, these days, there's a lot of churches of 150 people. And I talk to the pastors and they tell me about their executive pastor. And I think you have 150 people and seven staff members like you can afford a staff member with the part-time assistant in a church of that size, largely speaking. And so, yes, going to have to get cheaper uh, because once again, we cannot rely on, on the kind of giving that we've seen historically. Uh, and so reinvigorate that volunteer base and go back through the volunteer stuff that we've given you to help you do that. Good. Okay. Number three, get stable. Okay, so get better, get cheaper, and get stable. Here's what I mean by that. You want to have as few variables as possible in these coming years. So if you uh, can own a building, own a building. If you can get into a long-term lease, get into a long-term lease. Pay attention to lease language. Here's, here's my fear for a lot of us. If you're in a school, if you're in a community center, if you're in some sort of publicly owned or managed space, um, you are vulnerable to losing your lease. I think uh, it's already happening in some cities. It's going to happen more and more that uh, if you don't kind of toe the line on issues of sexuality and gender, you're out. Uh, you will no longer be tolerated. Probably some of what's happening around race and some of the specific language uh, will be required as well, uh, and some specific initiatives even. Uh, so I, I would just really try to steer clear of uh, a publicly owned space and try to get some predictability and stability. Okay, mm -hmm. so that from a facility standpoint, I think from a from a leadership and people standpoint, um, lock down your leaders and your biggest givers. Okay, now let me take a step back. I know all of this is really strategic, practical, tactical kind of stuff. We did a lot, some of the theological, philosophical stuff last week. I told you this was going to be really practical and tactical. Um, some of this is, you're, some of you guys are going to love this. Some of you guys are going to hate this. I get it. I'm used to being hated. I get it. It's fine. But here's the thing. You've got to lock down your leaders and your biggest givers. Try to figure out what they care about. Not so you can suck up to them and make sure you don't step on their toes but so that you aren't surprised by their issues, okay? We want to eliminate variables in this coming season. I think the last two years were a surprise to everyone. Probably every one of us had someone in their church leave over some social issue that you just did not know was a big deal for them, right? 
So whether it was they're way more left or way more right or cared about mass or cared about whatever, they left because you towed some line that they were not there for. And that was a shock. We can't be surprised anymore. Now, most, I would imagine, like the big shakeout has happened. Most of those people are gone. Who's still with you? You probably have a better sense of where they're at. They're probably more on board. But you need to be strategic about your best leaders and your biggest givers to just start really talking to them about what's going on in the news and what's going on in the world and how are you thinking and what are you reading? What, what, how, you know, what do you care about? Not again, so that you can tailor your messages or not talk about certain issues that you know might upset a big donor or something like that. Don't ever do that. But don't be surprised when what you talk about bugs them. So be preemptive. Hey, can we get coffee? Hey, this Sunday, talking about this. Here's what I'm going to say. Let's, let's dialogue about that. Give them a chance to understand where you're coming from. All you want to do is get ahead of it, okay? So that you're not surprised, they're not surprised, and you guys can stay on the same page, okay? Stay close to them personally. That is glue. That doesn't mean they'll never leave. We've all had people we thought we were really close with leave our church because of our position on X, Y, or Z, but it does help. It makes them stickier if you stay close to them relationally, okay? And then the last piece on the stability piece is financial one. I would really strongly emphasize that you budget and plan for incremental growth at best, probably just stasis for a while. And try not to put yourself in a position to be banking on end of year, you know, 30% uh, of your budget coming in end of year, okay? I spoke to several churches at the end of last year who it didn't come close to their normal end of year giving. Um, and I think we have to expect that that is more the norm now than it has been. So maybe if you're typically dependent on 30% of your budget end of year, I would expect it to be 15% going forward and be surprised by it, by all means. But I would really plan, plan for stability, plan for incremental growth, give yourself a long runway financially with your leaders, with your you know, facilities, whatever, to just weather this storm because we, we don't know all of where it's going to be. So we just need to weather it so we can get as much kind of data and as much of an awareness of, okay, what is the world we're facing now? Because the storm will calm, but the results of the beach after the storm, it will be a different makeup that we don't fully know yet. So try to plan for, for, for stability. Brian? So here's what I would say. I would say um, this goes back to the coaching we've been doing with you for two years now, which is saying reinvent rather than remember, all right, or innovate rather than fight to get back to normal. So what we're saying is an extension of innovate and reinvent, not get back to normal, but innovate and reinvent. And I think it's very important to realize that both Justin and I planted churches, you know, 15 to 20 years ago. Uh, and the, the, the church that the, the church world that we planted into the church that I planted grew to be quite large. And the church that Justin planted grew to be, uh, upwards of 5,000 people, you know, very large over, over the course of, of a number of years. And so, uh, in the church planning that we've been doing in the last 10 years or so, even before COVID, we're not seeing the level of growth in church planting. Justin has planted two more churches since, and albeit they were successful churches, they didn't have the same level of rapid growth that we saw back in 2000, 2001, 2002, 3, 4, 5, when, when a bunch of us were planting in that era. And so I think this is consistent already with what we were seeing. And then on top of that, what we've seen is we've seen the 40% of people were sort of hanging on that got a year off from church that are like, I don't know that we're going back anymore kind of enjoying that Sunday morning without church going out for pancakes every Sunday morning or whatever, you know, and so I reinvent rather than remember. And when you think about, when you think about budgeting and planning for growth uh, and you're like, Hey, back in the day, we were planning to go from 150 to 300 right now. We don't even know what the next five years looks like in a, in a lot of ways, you know, you cannot drive, you drive, I'm looking out my window at the Toyota dealership where there are no cars on the lot. We need to buy a car because uh, we're a car short. My wife drove me here today. 
and it's hard to even buy a car right now, you know, and so really, really valuable, important to continue to reinvent. Now, what's the next thing is uh, in terms of number four, what's the next thing in terms of reinventing? Uh, yeah, before I get to number four, I want to just want to uh, encourage you guys put questions in the Q&A. We'll do Q&A at the very end. Um, I saw Chris uh, go ahead and throw that if you could throw that uh, from the chat into the Q&A and uh, definitely ask questions, guys. Last week, we had a bunch of good questions and it was great. Um, so go ahead and throw questions in the Q&A. We'll do that at the very end. Um, so, all right, number four. Uh, so just quick recap, get better, get cheaper, get stable. Number four, get smaller. Now we've been hearing that small groups are important for a very, very long time and they just continue to be really, really important. I think actually groups are probably more important than ever. And I'm saying that as someone who doesn't like groups, I don't like being in groups. I don't like leading groups. I don't like the word groups. I don't know. I, I don't like any of it. So, but I think Groups are more important than ever. We have to invest in getting people connected to each other. I joked uh, at, the, at, at our kind of 2022 preview last year that it's finally the time for the missional community movement. This is their day. Alan Hirsch has been predicting this for 40 years now that we were just around the corner from really being uh, in need of missional communities. And the, I think he's finally right. Uh, now is the time. I do think uh, community is the key uh, we need to cast vision for more fully integrated lives. So at Icon Church that we planted in Seattle, we talked about uh, the value of overlapping community, that it's just simply not enough to have people that are in your life on Sundays. It needs to be overlapping, multiple spheres where you are connecting, whether that's, you know, church on Sunday, uh, a play group, a uh, school that you're a, also a part of, a community group or a initial community, whatever it is. Uh, a vision for overlapping community and fully integrated lives, I think is going to be really, really important um, because I am convinced by much of what Rod Dreher has written in his book, The Benedict Option, uh, and kind of follow up stuff to that. I really think that is going to be important. More and more and more pressure is going to be on Christians, uh, and they are going to have to, well, they are going to feel the pressure to live kind of double lives, one life in the world in their place of work and another life of faith that they have in their private life. Now, there will be tension in that and temptation to really compartmentalize and be two different people, which we will obviously have to pastor them not to do. But I do think as pastors, we will also need to recognize the fact that they will face pressure in their jobs. For instance, I think I maybe have told the story, we, we, you know, at All Souls Church, we do a weekly meet a soul post on Instagram where we highlight somebody from the church and we posted pictures of somebody's spouse that works for one of the very big companies here in the Los Angeles area with a, um, uh, an animal mascot. And he gently asked us if we would take those pictures down uh, because he wasn't sure he was ready to be kind of outed uh, as a churchgoer uh, to his employer and uh, fellow employees. And so this is the kind of pressure, whether he, whether that was right or wrong, right thing to do or not, doesn't matter. That's the pressure that he felt. We need to be able to connect people with integrated lives to one another so that um, they don't become disintegrated and uh, so that they can have community to really kind of deal with these things together. So we have to double down on groups. The, the complication for this practically is for those of us who are in places where people are still nervous about COVID and getting into people's homes in close proximity like that, There, you just got to get creative, think about workarounds, outside spaces, especially in Los Angeles, we can do everything outside. Um, and that's really nice. But really, community is the thing. So if you need to go back and reread Benedict Adoption, shave 10% of Rod Dreher's alarmism off of it, or at least the tone of it, take the, the meat, which I think is there's a lot of, and just think, okay, how can we build community at our church that's going to support people as they feel increasing amounts of pressure? So 
We don't have to just get better, get cheaper, get more stable. We have to get smaller as well. Uh, and this is this is nothing new, but I think the importance of it is going to continue to get more. Brian? You will also have to continue. This is true. What you'll have to continue to do is to do, well, let me say this. Rather than continue, you'll have to do more intensive training than you've probably done in the past because of the difficulty of even getting 12 people together in a living room. And so you get 12 people together and two of them are angry about something that's going on politically with Joe Biden and two feel like Donald Trump is the next Messiah and two feel like, you know, you've got all these different viewpoints. You've got, you know, my parents visited a small group. They just moved here at our new church last week and they spent most of the small group talking about how they're the anti-mask church is what the, the people in the small group told them. We're the anti-mask church. We don't believe in masks. We don't. I thought that's really interesting because regardless, and I hate wearing a mask. I mean, I've, I've been wearing, wearing one with a beard on an airplane, you know, until this week, uh, 12 hours last Wednesday. It's it's miserable, you know, so I am no fan of the mask. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. Uh, and I do everything I can to not have to wear one. I just know when I read the scripture, that's not what should characterize me is whether or not I'm willing to wear a mask. And so You've got to train your small group leaders, missional community leaders to be handling these sorts of things. And so what I'm doing right now is I'm, I'm, I'm meeting with my group leaders, you know, in a group, perhaps on a Zoom call for an hour, once every six weeks. And maybe we're getting together once a quarter on a Friday evening and having a meal together outside. Someone's, you know, unless you're in a freezing cold area or whatever, the best you can to make sure that you're training because just saying, hey, we're bolstering our small groups, we're bolstering our groups is not going to do well unless you're making sure that you keep those leaders trained to engage in, in what's what's more difficult. You get 12 people together today, and it's not likely that they all agree on a number of things. How are your group leaders going to handle that? What are you going to emphasize? How are you going to welcome people that feel differently about current political issues that are still that still believe the same gospel? So all right, now we're pressing on to number five. Justin, what's number five? Yeah, so again, quick recap. We got to get better. And I know that's a, that's a lot. Uh, we probably could have just talked about that today and then cried together. But uh, we got to get better. We got to get cheaper. Got to get stable. Get smaller. And last, we got to get together. Okay, mergers and strategic partnerships are going to be really necessary. Okay, not everybody's going to make it. Okay. Not everybody is going to make it. The pressure is going to mount. People are going to leave. We're not going to be able to pay for things. Not all churches are going to make it. I think all of us, no matter where you are on that spectrum, strong and stable and growing, uh, vulnerable and, and, and afraid and anxious about the future, all of us need to be thinking about mergers and strategic partnerships and thinking about it this way. If you are on that strong and stable end of things, Reach out to churches in the area who may need help. Think of ways to gas them, not absorb them, okay? So if you're a strong church, you've got facilities, be thinking about, okay, how can we leverage our strength for these other churches? And reach out ways to go, hey, I know you're in a school, that's, that's a tenuous situation. If it would be better for you to do a 2 p.m. or a 5 p.m. or whatever in our space, uh, rather than to be, you know, kind of at the whim of the school, man, we'd love to have you. We'll match whatever your rent you're paying, whatever, whatever that is. What, how, if you are strong and stable, find ways to support and gas other churches, not just think, okay, who can we absorb and what leaders are strong and how can we get there? Don't, don't do that. That's, uh, I hope that's obvious. Uh, but what will happen is either way, the strong and stable, especially if you position yourself as a generous kingdom-minded church, what will happen is churches will come and go, hey, yeah, we would love to partner with you. What, what could that look like? And you dream together and you put something together and, and it turns into a merger. I have done more mergers than I ever could have imagined doing in, in my life, not only personally, uh, but have consulted on a number of mergers. So our very first church, we planted, we grew to 2,000 people on two campuses. We did a merger with two other churches. We became 5,000 people on five campuses. Uh, and, and, and that kind of kicked the whole thing off. Since then, when we were in Seattle, our church did uh, a merger. 
and we're in long conversations about another merger that never fully played out. Uh, and we did that multiple times. Uh, I believe in mergers. I think they can be really helpful, strategic partnerships. Um, I, I think they are really going to be necessary for the future because not everybody's going to make it. And rather than things just falling apart, like the church nearby here in Burbank just, just closed their doors, never got a phone call, never, uh, hey, is there a way that we could figure this out together? And now that church just doesn't exist anymore. And I don't know what they told their people to do or where those people are, but that that is not the great way to end a church. So if you're strong, reach out to churches who might be more vulnerable. If you're vulnerable, reach out to churches that are strong and see if you can partner together. And my advice to you would be take a humble posture, okay? Don't come in and going, hey, you know, we, we're not going to be able to make it unless you help us. And I think maybe you should give us the 10 a.m. slot. Maybe you guys could shift to the one. Like, that's not going to happen, okay? Take a humble posture. Know what you want. Know what you need. Be realistic, okay? I think one of the things that we're going to see, and we're already seeing this on, on the context staffing side, with, with, with all of this, and, and I, I hate to just make it sound like this is, you know, the free market or something, but the reality is it's the free market. The market has defined our culture in such significant ways that whether we like it or not, or whether we have intentionally allowed it to become part of a culture or not in our church, people think like a free market. So the people who are best at these things are the churches that are going to grow. That also means the pastors that are most able and honestly, most of the time, it's just most willing to make these shifts are going to have a place in, in these churches in the future. The pastors who are unable or more likely unwilling to shift their perspective, to shift their job. If, if I can just do a little soapbox for a moment, I talk to so many pastors who go, man, I just want to read the Bible and study and then preach and care for people. That's what I want. That's all I want to do. And they say it like that's just a, you know, a humble pastoral thing. And I get it. I, I too would love to read 20 hours a week and get up and deliver a sermon and then maybe talk to people. Although the people stuff, not so much for me, but other people, I get how they like that. I, the reality is that's just not the future of the job. That's just not the thing anymore. You have to earn the right to spend 20 hours a week in, in your office studying for a sermon. That it, you better come out of that thing with such an incredible sermon that it just blows people's minds. Because otherwise, they need you to be a leader. And it's the leaders that are going to make these shifts and the guys that are willing to go, hey, what I would like to do is spend 20 hours a week in prep and then come up and deliver a sermon and maybe talk to some people and, and shepherd people. But what I know I need to do is X, Y, and Z. And that's what I'm going to do because my first. Uh, desire, my first commitment is to the church, not to my job description. And so, okay, soapbox over. We're going to have to humbly, strategically partner together uh, for our churches to survive and for us to be able to continue to have a role in the church. Brian, wrap that up. Man, I think that's all good. I think when we look at what is coming, um, this is really simple. You know, it's get we have to get better, and we've been saying that to you for a long time. We have to get cheaper, so we have to we have to be wiser with the way that we invest money. We have to get stable. Justin and I have been thinking and talking a lot about the future of church planting. Uh, and you know, it used to be that you moved in and you planted a church in a strip mall or you rented a school, and and we just don't know if that's going to happen very much anymore. You know. We have to get smaller and that that's always going to work, you know, and then train leaders well, and then looking for ways for us to partner together and get together. That's solid, man. And what I want to say to you is before we take Q&A, and I see we have a couple of questions already, I want to say to you, good coaching means that you make a couple of decisions about what you're going to do going forward. So when you look at these five things and you say, hey, what I really have to focus on here is I, we have, I have to focus on getting better. We have to get better as a church in these three areas. What are they? Post them on Facebook, make a plan to do that, reach out to us, ask a question, make a commitment in the in the chat right here. Maybe what you're saying is we have to really focus on getting smaller. So here's what we're going to do. So what is a, you know, David Allen in his book, Getting Things Done, says that the, the question most people fail to ask is what's the very next step I need to take? 
So what is the very next step you need to take to implement one of these five things? Or perhaps I mean, the next step might be for you to take a day and to say, I'm going to do some planning around these five things. I'm going to plan around these five things. What are we going to do to get better? What are we going to do to get stable? What are we going to do to get smaller? I'm not looking at the five because uh, I'm looking at you now, but but all that to say, I want to encourage you to take that next step. Now let's go. We've got about 10 minutes left before we need to wrap. So let me, uh, let me read a couple of questions here. So far, we have two questions from BK Smith. If you have any questions, put them in the Q&A. So BK, you say, I agree with you that people are missing community. However, are there other any other options for creating community in church outside of small groups? I'm thinking in a church of 150 to 200. We live in a highly unchurched area. We're the biggest church in a city of 20K that is essentially a tourist destination. So the, the critical question here is, um, and, and again, you follow up with people seem to want community with the whole church, not with just 12 people. The critical question here is, what can we do that is different than small groups um, um, in a church of 150 to 200? Justin, thoughts on this? Yeah. Uh, so, BK, uh, I know all of us pastors love to read books. The, the book I would recommend to you is called The Search to Belong by Joseph Myers. It's written a long time ago. It was kind of in that like emergent uh, or emerging church era. And, uh, and so it's a little dated. But I have read that over and over and over, and I use it in all of my churches. I think it is a really helpful way to think through community that isn't just a monolithic, well, you got to do small groups, right? Because like I said, I hate small groups. So any book that tells me I don't have to do small groups, I'm all about it. It's the best book I've ever read, okay? Um, in The Search of Belong, Joseph Myers talks about the, the people's need for multiple kinds of relationships. And, and I'm going to mess up the the um, language exactly, but I think it is public space, social space, uh, uh, personal space, and private space, um, or something like that. Intimate maybe is the is the closest one, or is the smallest one. And and what he talks about is we don't just need uh, one of those things, but we do need all of those things, right? We need public space, and that would be like going to a Rams game, and the Rams score a touchdown, and people high five, and we got to know the guys next to us, and they're they were cool and we all danced to Montel Jordan, whatever. That is a significant relationship for that space, right? It's not nothing, it's something, it's fun. That's Sunday service, right? Uh, social space is that kind of 100 to 150 space, right? Where you, you can't really have more than 150 meaningful relationships. Gladwell's talked about that. Lots of social scientists have talked about that. Um, and, and that is a social space where there's actually name and face and some recognition. But then there's personal space, which is that, you know, group of 12 to 15. You do need that level of community and relationship for people to actually know what's going on with you in an ongoing fashion. And then that private or intimate space, which is probably your best friend and your wife and, and you know, very few other people. And the reality is we need people in all of those spaces. And so that allows me to think a little more creatively about how we think about community in our churches. So without getting into too much detail, I think throwing parties, having, you know, more social gatherings on a regular basis, community lunches, um, in addition to, uh, you know, having like, you know, accountability groups and all that stuff. So just thinking more broadly, but I would say Search to Belong by Joseph Myers, highly recommend that one. All right, good stuff. You know, and I'll add to this just briefly. I think the, um, you know, getting people together is contextual, you know, so a block party in a neighborhood is getting people together. There's so many different ways to get people together. I think you have to ask what works in our community. How can we get people together? What are people looking for? All right, Cody from Denton, Texas. What's up? Fan of the uh, losing Cowboys last Sunday, I think. I mean, you know, the Cowboys have won one playoff game in 30 years. That's not too bad, you know, so, uh, but do you see this as a member meeting type of conversation to get everybody thinking about it? Or will that terrify people? Or is this more of a drip method of info dissemination, starting with leaders and going viral? Now, I assume that you, when you say, do you see this as a member meeting? Are you asking, do you see these five things? Do you see community? Cody, maybe you could weigh in here and tell us what you think. Um, I'm not exactly sure if you're asking a Justin question here in terms of community. Justin, are you seeing this differently? Yeah, I mean, I'll 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 take a guess at it, and then Cody, you can correct us if you want. But 
I, my guess is what you're saying is talking about the storm and all of the all of what's going on and how we need to respond, just kind of the big picture of, of this situation. And I would say um, the way to terrify your people is to call a members meeting, talk about all the problems and all the risk and all the, you know, the, the potential, you know, future without any solutions or a plan. So don't do that, right? Don't go into a members meeting and be like, guys, just so you know, the future is going to be crazy and I hope we make it, right? That would be a bad idea. But if you can start by establishing structure, establishing answers, establishing like, how are we going to go about this? And then, you know, walk through it and go, hey, we got to get better. Here's three ways we're going to get better. We got to get cheaper. Here's three ways we're going to get cheaper. We got to get more stable. Here's how we're going to get more stable, right? Whatever it is, then I think that's great. And it establishes the stakes, right? So all good marketing has to establish stakes in order to sell anything. And that includes a vision for your church. You have to lay out the stakes. Why does this ask matter? Why do I need this toaster? Because you've been toasting your bread all wrong and, and your life depends on it, right? So buy this toaster and they'll solve that problem. So whether you're selling toasters, or you're selling vision, you have to define the stakes. That's what we're trying to do for you here is define what the stakes are and then help you to think through how to meet that challenge. So I absolutely think it is a top-down and bottom-up kind of, kind of solution. Uh, you gotta do both. All right, let's go to the next question, uh, which is from uh, Chris Walker. Chris, good to hear from you. I can picture you as I read this question. Just a question thought about your first point about church growth changes. Is part of this helping our people and other leaders know what it means to be successful as a church? I mean, biblically, like, what is the true scorecard? What are the marks of the spirit in the church? I found myself needing to do this a lot during these past two years for nominal Christians and strong leaders alike and could foresee more of that going forward. So is the, the, the key question here is, um, is this is part of this helping our people and other leaders know what it means to be successful as a church? Justin? Yeah, Chris, that's a really good question. And, I, and, I'll, and I'm glad you asked it so that I can clarify what I mean and don't mean about getting better and why that matters, right? We don't want to get better so that our churches can grow because church growth is what matters. That's not what matters. Discipleship is what matters. Caring for people is what matters. People growing in the gospel is what matters. We have to get better at those things so that we can continue to do those things. So I don't care if your church is 150 people or 1,500 people. The reality is we've got to get better at doing the things we're supposed to be doing, which is discipling people, caring for kids, preaching the gospel, singing songs, all those, all those kinds of things so that we can do discipleship and see the kind of fruit of the spirit that you're talking about. So I'm not saying that the marks of a Holy Spirit filled church is growth because around the world and throughout Christian history, that would never have been the scorecard. We have lived and are just coming out of a truly unprecedented time in the history of the church where we were lived, we're, we're fishing in a stocked pond. That has just never been the case around the world and throughout history. So uh, that's, that's the anomaly, not what we're walking into. What we're walking into is absolutely the norm when you think more broadly. So when I say get better, I just mean Let's stay focused on what matters. Let's get good at what we're what we're supposed to do. Let's not allow there to be big holes because we've been lazy. We haven't had to have a good fishing pole. We haven't had to, you know, have good bait. We haven't had to know how to reel a fish in, right? Like, so think about fly fishing. It, it, it takes really good technique because it's really hard. This is going to get hard. We got to improve our technique and we got to improve the, just the, the system of what we're doing, like take away all the, all the kind of business language of it. I'm not trying to get you to think that way. We just cannot be lazy anymore about what we're doing. It's because we got to care for people and disciple people and share the gospel with people. All right, we're done to our last question. We've got about two minutes left here. Tim Stewart, good to hear from you, Tim, up in Northern California. Get cheaper. If we have some funds for remodeling, what do you think return on investment for expanded lobby? Uh, heard lots doing because of COVID and updated kids space. We own our building, but need some love in these areas. Maybe thinking about utilizing kids space for community as well. I'm going to defer to Justin uh, to this as well. I got something to say about everything, but it's not always the best thing. So I'm going to let Justin answer this. 
Yeah, I always have the best things, so I'll, I'll go first. Um, yeah, well, the, you are an <laughs> Phoenix sports fan, so I don't know about that. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, Tim, I it's hard to answer that question without seeing your lobby and how much love your kid space actually needs, right? So um, I would probably prioritize kid space over lobby space in general, like in a vacuum. Um, but maybe I can come see your space and we can walk through it and talk talk about it um i don't know um i would i would probably not do a lot of remodeling right now um unless something is a liability i would want to shore up all my liabilities i probably wouldn't be thinking a lot about expansion right now i would sit on that cash for a little bit and see what the next year or two holds um, unless, unless the lobby is a, a, a real liability and making it hard to do ministry. Um, if that's the case, then maybe think about it, but I, I would, I would want cash right now if I were you. All right. That wraps us for today. 50 chat, 50 comments in the chat, which is a lot, lots of good questions. Uh, next week, we will be back with you, Justin, give us the quick, in fact, let me send it back to you to give us the quick uh, preview of next week and wrap, and then we will see you next week. Yeah, next week we're talking about leadership. And, and this is the thing that I've been thinking about the most probably is what does leadership, what does Christian leadership look like in the next 20 years? And and it's it's probably kind of the thing that I'm most obsessed with right now is figuring out what is the, what we, we've seen a, a type of leadership that emerged in the 90s, the kind of Rick Warren and Heibel's style leadership that emerged in the 90s. We've seen a, we saw kind of a different kind of leadership in early Acts 29 days, a more prophetic kind of thing. Right now in the church, we're seeing a, a, like kind of a charismatic movement and, you know, the Furtick's and the Grishels and some of that stuff that's happening. Um, and I'm kind of curious, what's, what is the future of Christian leadership, not just in the church, but around the world or, or in every sphere of life? And so we're going to start that conversation next week. What does leadership look like for the storm? So join us. It's been good these last couple of weeks. Appreciate all the feedback, the questions, the chat. It's way more fun when you guys talk back to us. Um, and, uh, and so look forward to that again next week. All right. We will see you all next week. Bye, everyone.